Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. That's where we've been for the last few weeks, and that's where we'll be at today. In the Washington Post, there was an article that appeared about a new church in the state of Maryland a few years ago. Using market research and focus groups, this denomination had designed their weekly services deliberately to de-emphasize Jesus Christ. One of the founders said, the sad fact is the name of Jesus Christ has become, for many people, exclusionary. Become something that kind of sets us apart from everybody else, and a lot of people don't want to interact with the name Jesus, and so using Hindu and Zen, intermingle with a few verses from the Bible, and recorded music by groups like Willie Nelson, the leader of this group, is quoted as saying, we're enabling people to discover God themselves, maybe through Jesus Maybe through Buddha, maybe through any number of ways. Now, most of us in this room probably hear that, and you're appalled at the defamation of Christianity. Most of us hear that and say, How can you dare de emphasize Jesus Christ? And we should be. And quite possibly, some in this room hear that and go, I can understand because I don't understand all this about Jesus and why Jesus is so important. Now before we come down too hard on them, I, I want to address a very dangerous and deadly disease that I believe is running rampant in the evangelical church today, which that would be the label of center point, so to speak, if you're going to put a label on us. At first glance, it seems so harmless, but it can infect an entire community. It's like a virus that spreads so wildly, kind of like right now, how the flu and the colds and the science are just spreading like crazy. It's like sharing that one to another. Did you see this week that about 15 schools were shut down for a day just because of viruses that were spreading? It's kind of a virus like that. I would call it the virus of practicality, and it's spreading like wildfire in American churches. Here's how it works. Instead of calling people to faith, repentance, and submission to the supremacy of Christ, many of us tell people that Jesus just wants to give them a happy life, a happy marriage, a stress-free life. Take and fill your pocketbook, that all your finances will be taken care of. You'll be good and feeling healthy as long as you put your faith in Jesus. Now, while certainly Jesus changes our lives, and I surely believe He changes our marriages, and I believe when you walk in Jesus, your stress level can come down and He can help you know how to manage your stress when you bow before His preeminence. But we must move away from what Jesus can do for me to am I living in light of His Lordship. We must in today's culture, church. For too long we've been living underneath of, well, what will I get out of it instead of, Lord, what do you want from me and I'm going to give it. I'll bring it. See, we simply, what we're doing is we simply add Jesus to our lives. We adore Him, but He wants us not only adore Him, we want, He wants us to obey Him. And the American church today is where it is because of lack of obedience. That brings us to our text today in the book of Colossians. Much of the false teaching taking place in Colossae had to do with the minimizing of Jesus Christ. Many people thought He was important but not essential. They had given Him a place in their lives without recognizing that He demands first place in their lives. Jesus was prominent to them, but He certainly wasn't preeminent. And as we go through this text today, we're going to see that the call of Christ through the Apostle Paul 
is that he's preeminent. Paul refers at least three misconceptions in Colossians. One, the false teachers taught that God did not create the world because in their view matter was evil and God cannot create evil. And so they were spreading that idea around. Also, false teachers were teaching that believing that matter was evil, they argued that God would not have come to earth as a human in bodily form because there's no way a great God would dare come down to this earth. And thirdly, the false teachers said they did not believe that Christ was the unique Son of God, but rather one of many intermediaries between God and people. And so they're saying, He's a good man. Sounds familiar to some cultural times that we live in, doesn't it? He's just a good man. So as we study Colossians, verses 15 through 23 this morning, we come to what is known as the pinnacle of Christianity. If you are in Christ or you are not in Christ, this is the the text that you need to understand. This is the text to sit down with a friend and say, let me just share the gospel with you and point them to this text. And if you're not in Christ and you're trying to discover it, this text explains what it means to be in Christ. Verses 15 through 17, we're going to look at today as we go through these, and we're going to get the main idea of this as it's broken down to two sections. The main idea, though, if you just want to write this down right now, is that Jesus is supreme overall. We got to get that. Jesus is supreme overall. In verses 15 through 17, we're going to see he's supreme over creation. And in verses 18 through 23, that he's supreme over the new creation. Jesus is paramount over everything that he has created. In verses 15 through 17, he's preeminent over all that he has redeemed. In verses 18 through 23. And so Paul lays out this call that Jesus is preeminent. Another way to say it is that he has first place over both the cosmos and the church, or he is Lord over everything he has made, and he is Lord over everything that he has saved. There's many ways to kind of look at this today, but the whole idea comes down to that he is supreme, he is preeminent, he is Lord over everything. So let's look, consider these two major areas. First of all, Jesus is supreme over creation. The passage is one of the strongest in Scripture as it relates to the superiority of the Savior. Look at verses 15 through 17 with me. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Just in those Three verses, 15 and 17, I find four truths that we need to understand. One is He's God. Paul doesn't mince words here. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Images convey meaning and they describe words. For instance, my wedding band on my finger right here reminds us and describes and represents the fact that Brianna finally said yes. It represents the fact that we've been married for, it'll be 23 years this year. If you stop and look at other images, you think about the flag, the image of the American flag flying over ground zero. It ignites patriotism and sadness and maybe even some anger in our hearts. And as powerful as these symbols are, they are simply representation of deeper realities. My ring doesn't make me married, rather it's a symbol that I am married. And the American flag is a powerful symbol, but it only represents what our country is really all about. Listen, you've got to grasp this part. 
you've got to understand this. Jesus is not just a symbol of God. He is God himself. And it's so key in this text today. The word image in the Greek language refers to likeness or manifestation or replica. In that culture, the image was a die or stamp that could make an exact reproduction. And passports in Paul's day had a section called distinguishing marks, which describes something about that person that set them apart from everyone else. And Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the precise copy because he is God himself. And Paul is laying out this great doctrinal, theological understanding that we must grasp. He both represents and manifests God to the world. It's a huge concept. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. That phrase, made him known, means that Jesus declares or literally exegetes to the world what God the Father is really like. You go on and look at John 14, 9. Jesus revealed this about himself. He said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In a parallel passage in Hebrews 1, 3, it says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Exact representation. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 also refers to Christ as being the image of God. Someone has said that Jesus is God with skin on. It's a good explanation. Jesus is with God with skin on, and so the truth is, He's God. Second truth of those passages, He's the unique Son of God. Jesus is not only God, He's the firstborn over all creation. Jehovah Witnesses believe that this verse teaches that Jesus was a created being, and therefore, He's not God. The phrase firstborn is most frequently translated as to an heir of an owner. See, in ancient times, it meant the ranking one or the supreme one. Jacob was not firstborn. He was not the firstborn, but he was heir. This is strongly supported in Psalm 89 where we read that the God appointed the King David as his firstborn, even though he was the youngest of eight brothers. This verse concludes saying that David will be the most exalted king of kings of the first of the earth. Firstborn, therefore, is a title of honor position, not of chronological order. And so when God refers to Jesus as firstborn, he's referring to him as a, as a position of honor, not in chronological order. The third truth in the past you understand is he's a creator of all things. See, Jesus is the image of God and the exalted one over all creation because he's a creator. So we do not misunderstand what firstborn means. In verse 16, Paul explains that all things were created in, through, and for Christ. Look at verse 16 again. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus, in other words, is not a mere man. He is the creator of all things, those things we can see and those things that we cannot see. See, the context of Colossians 1 declares that Jesus is sovereign creator, not one who was himself created. And it really goes against what the false teachers of the day were teaching. And because the false teachers taught that the physical world was evil, they thought that God himself could not have been created. They reasoned that if Christ were God, he would not be in charge of the only spiritual world. Paul explained that all thrones, all dominions, all principalities, and all powers in heaven and earth of both the visible and the invisible world are under the authority of Christ because he created them. These are four classifications are used elsewhere in Scripture to describe the world, both, both holy and evil spirit beings. Since Colossians gave unique promise 
prominence to angels, Paul here quickly puts everything under the rule of Christ. Jesus has no rival. The verse also refutes the false teaching that Christ was one of the many intermediaries and the angels were to be worshipped. He's trying to say, no, listen, everything is underneath the foot of Jesus. The highest angelic princes are subject to Jesus Christ, whether it be a seraphim or a cherubim or whether it be demons or Satan himself, Paul is screaming out that Jesus is Lord of all. We've got to answer the question in our lives, though, is he really? Is he really? Revelation 4.11, the New Living Translation puts it this way, for you were created, for you created everything, and it's for your pleasure that they exist and were created. Fourth truth in these few verses is that he holds all things together. See, as our country continues under its being disheavalness, so to speak, it's important to keep in mind that Jesus holds everything together spiritually, morally, financially. Look at verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus existed before all things. To hold together means to prevent something from falling into complete chaos. Christ is before all things, both in time and in rank. He is not only the creator of the world, he is the, cho- he, he is the cohesion that keeps it all together. By him everything came to be, and by him everything continues to be. Hebrews 1.3 reminds us that he holds everything together by his powerful word. If we were to remove his sustaining power, everything would dissolve into disorder. I mean, right now, it seems like people are just totally wigging out in our culture today. Falling off the deep end in our country over the political and moral landscape that we find ourselves in. Church, let me tell you, we don't have to wig out or become unglued because Jesus is keeping everything from falling apart, even when in our eyes we think it's falling apart. He holds it all together. He upholds everything by the word of His power. Remember that there is no crisis in heaven. And I would suggest, if you find yourself wigging out over what's going on, get more into His Word and turn off social media and television and the news station. Just quit looking at it and say, Lord, I just need to be filled with Your Word right now. Because the more you look at other stuff, it just messes with your mind and your stress levels and you continue down that path of going, our world's falling to hell in a handbasket. And it's how you start feeling. And so turn all that off. He'll be exalted among the nations. Jesus is supreme over creation in verses 15 through 17. It screams, He is God. He is the unique Son of God. He is the creator of all things, and He holds all things together. Why? Because He's Lord. Because He is supreme. And so as we turn to verses 18 through 23, we discover that Jesus is also preeminent over His new creation. Jesus is supreme over his new creation. The focus shifts from the old natural creation to the new spiritual creation. The creating God now becomes the reconciling God. The God who put it all together, who understands how it all is falling apart and looks terrible, says, now let me show you what reconciliation looks like. We see first that he is the head of the church in verses 18 and 19. Look at the text. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Paul uses a personal pronoun here that is actually very emphatic. It literally means he himself is the head. Only Jesus qualifies to be the head of the church. Is that not right? 
The word head means that Jesus is the authority. It means He is the source for the church. We can relate to that. The head gives the body the ability to produce growth, and without it, the body dies. We all understand that concept. We lose our head, our body is going to die. Many churches seem to forget this. See, if Jesus Christ is not supreme in the church, then there is no church. If Jesus is not the Lord of the church, then it's not a church. That was part of the trouble in Colossae. They had lost connection to Christ, and as a result, they were experimenting with all sorts of false doctrine and sinful behavior. we got to understand that Jesus is the head of Centerpoint Christian Church, not me, not the elders, not the ministry leaders, not any of you who are serving. We are just servants within this great church. Jesus Christ is supreme over this church, and we bow before His authority. That's who we look to. Jesus is beginning, which means that He is the source. The word has two meanings, to rule and to begin. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. The church is the creation of Christ, and we must follow its head. He's the firstborn from among the dead, signifying that as the Supreme One, His resurrection is, is the guarantee that we too will rise again. I love verse 19. You stop and look at verse 19. I mean, it gives God the Father great joy and pleasure to have all His fullness dwell in Jesus. God's like, I, all my fullness dwells in my Son, Jesus. It greatly pre- pleased the Father for the Son to have preeminence over creation and the church. And, and there are three significant truths about Jesus in this verse. One is the fullness of God dwells in Him. God dwells in Jesus in fullness. It was not around. It was not a pond. It was, it was not under Him. Rather, it was in Him. So in Jesus, we see God. And that's why they're one and the same. The word dwell also means to take up residence and points to the incarnation. It is used in a sense of a permanent dwelling and would remind believers of God's desire to choose a place for His name to dwell in the Old Testament. Look at Colossians 2.9 where it says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity, that being God, lives in bodily form, so God is in Jesus, so they are one and the same. And then truth number three is this phrase, all is fullness, is a technical term in the vocabulary of the Gnostic false teachers. See, it meant the sum total of all the divine power and attributes. Paul uses the term eight different times in Colossians to show the believers that Jesus is the fullness of God and no one else. The fact that it pleased the Father to have all His fullness dwell in Christ is proof that Jesus Christ is God. They're one and the same. Paul then ties all this together. He talks about Jesus is supreme over creation. Jesus is supreme over His new creation. And Paul ties it together in these last few verses with the gospel message. In verse 20 through 23, Paul describes the work of Jesus in reconciling lost people to Himself. And as people come to a saving faith in Christ and are reconciled through Christ's blood, they become members of a church which He is the head. Look at verse 20. It begins with a general statement of reconciliation. And through Him... To reconcile himself to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. See, the false teachers at Colossae were teaching people that they could not get closer to God through worship, that they could get closer to God through worship of angels and by observing certain rules and rituals and regulations, but they couldn't promise total, complete reconciliation. They were saying, do all this stuff, 
keep all these things right and keep all these things in order and you will be close and right with God. One Bible dictionary defines reconciliation this way. It says the restoration of friendship and fellowship after estrangement. It also means to change thoroughly from one position to another position. Reconciliation happens when someone or something is completely altered and adjusted so the relationship of peace can begin with the one whom estrangement had taken place. See, Paul establishes four elements the reconciliation Christ in verse. One is the focus. He says, reconcile to himself. The focus is always reconciled to God. The initiative and action must come from him, and he put things in order. Secondly is the scope. He says, all things. Reconciliation involves the whole universe. Thirdly, the result is peace through Jesus. Our hostility with God can end. And fourthly, the means is through His blood shed on the cross. Salvation is only through sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross as our sin payments. And Paul says this is for everybody. Paul says that's where reconciliation takes place. Verse 21 moves from the general to the specific. Paul reminds us what we were like before, before we experienced peace with God. Look at verse 21. He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. We were alienated. I mean, the word alienate means to estrange, to withdraw, to make indifferent or averse where love or friendship before existed. We use the word alien to refer to strangers that are outside. Apart from the grace of God, all of us are estranged from God. And Paul says we were enemies. We were not just alienated. The Bible says that we were actively hostile to God. We were against God. Our minds were at war with God. Romans 8, 7 says, For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. And so our behavior was evil. Bad thoughts often lead to bad behavior. What's inside will eventually come out. And Paul's intention, though, was not to dwell on what they were apart from Christ. Despite these negative traits, God took the initiative. And in verse 22, he extends grace. Look at it. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you a holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. No longer to be aliens, no longer to be estranged because Christ has reconciled, brought us back even though we were enemies against God. Notice it was Christ's physical body that reconciled. The false teachers in Colossae denied that Jesus had a real human body. But the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that Jesus was both God and man. 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you are healed. See, the purpose behind the pleasure of the Father and reconciliation of the Son is to present saved sinners in heaven for eternity. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That phrase, present, was used when someone inspected a potential sacrifice to God before offering it to him. It's the same word used in Romans 12.1 when referring to, Christ, to the Christian presenting his body to God as a, as a living sacrifice. The word was also used when an individual would make a, a case 
to a just God. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, He is both sacrifice and justifier so that our sins can be forgiven and we can be declared righteous before a holy judge. And it's only because of what Jesus did and nothing else. We've got to grasp these concepts, church. We cannot allow the culture today to influence us in any other way. Let's look at three results of reconciliation. One, we're holy in His sight. We're set apart and declared holy by God. We're we're without blemish. This word was applied to the temple sacrifice, which had to be free from any faults or blotches. When God looks at you, He sees no blemishes when you are in Christ, free from accusation. This is a legal term which literally means not to be called in. No charge of condemnation or sentence of eternal death can ever be brought against believers in the court of divine justice. Romans 8 says, Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised in life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He's going to battle for us. Paul's emphasis on our, whole, on our holy standing before God was a direct attack on false teachers. They promised a kind of perfection, so to speak, a perfection for those who had secret and mystical knowledge. Paul is saying you already have a perfect standing in Christ. You are already holy in His sight. You are without blemish. You are free from any accusation. And Paul is saying why seek anything else? Why look for anything else? We must finish by looking at the last passage, last part of verse 23. It says, if you continue in your faith, establish and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This can be translated literally, if indeed you continue in faith, and I believe you are doing so. Paul was bringing a word of encouragement. If you continue, and I believe you're going to do it, this is how the world how the word is used in Colossians 3.1, since then you have been raised with Christ. Paul is using an architectural image when he says, establish and firm, not move. The town of Colossae was located in a region known for earthquakes. And the word translated move can mean earthquake stricken. Paul is saying, if you continue in Christ, you can face any kind of earthquake that will come your way. Just as a house firmly set on a foundation will not move, so too, if you are truly saved and you're truly in Christ, you built your, your, your house, your spiritual house, so to speak, on the foundation of Jesus Christ, then Paul is saying, continue in your faith. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 7. He says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who's built his house upon the sand. And he goes on and explains how the storms will come and it will destroy your life if you're not firmly established on Christ. In this text, there's seven characteristics that I've hit with you today about Jesus. Let me hit them real quick again. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. He created all things. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He has the fullness of God and dwelling in Him. He is reconciling all things to Himself. Paul just gives us right here in these few verses, in these eight, nine verses, Paul gives us, here's the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Here's who Jesus is. Here's how God and Jesus are one. And here's how you're reconciled to a right relationship with Him. Contrary to what the leaders of the organization in Maryland have said, 
I wouldn't even say you can call it a church, but nowadays, I guess for tax purposes, you can label church somehow, some way. Jesus Christ is exclusionary, and church, He must remain so. We can't change that. Because of His supremacy over all things, each of us must face a question this morning. And I put this out this week in some social media avenues, put it out in text message yesterday, if you get the text message from the church, and said, we're going to deal with the biggest question of life. And I believe this is the biggest question that every single one of us in this room must answer. And the question is this, is Jesus supreme in your life? Is He supreme? Every single one of us must answer that question. Is He supreme in my life? Another way to ask that question is, is He Lord of my life? So I used to encourage people to make Jesus Lord of their lives. I used to say, it's time now. Make Jesus Lord of your life. But then I learned that Scripture never speaks of anyone making Him Lord except God Himself. See, in Acts 2.36, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. God did that work. You and I don't make Him Lord. He is already Lord. He is Lord of all, whether we want it to be or not to want it to be. He is Lord of all, whether we accept it or whether we don't accept it. He's still Lord. John Arthur hits it on the head when he says, The biblical mandate for both sinners and saints is not to make Christ Lord, but rather to bow to His Lordship. He is ever and always Lord, whether or not anyone acknowledges His Lordship or surrenders to His authority. Paul Harvey, during his noon broadcast, reminded his listeners that Billy Graham's words were heard all around the world when he spoke at the National Cathedral. Mr. Harvey then quoted from the book of Daniel and the Gospel of Mark, stating that the Gospel would be preached to the whole world, and then the end would come. He then paused and said this, To some of you, this brings great comfort. And he continued and said, To others of you, if it's not comforting, you can make it so. For some in you, for some of you in this room, it's time to maybe make it so today. Some of you have never surrendered yourself to Christ by receiving him in your life for forgiveness of sins. Some of you have never done that. Some of you are still alienated. Some of you are still enemies of God. Your mind is at war with Him and your behavior is evil. Today could be a day for you to bow your knee before Him and say, God, I surrender. God, you are Lord, and I'm going to accept that truth and that fact in my life. Today could be a day that you receive forgiveness of sins and be declared holy without blemish and free from accusation. Today could be that day for some in this room. Others of you have already been converted. Others of you made that commitment some years ago and said, you are Lord, and I want you to be Lord of my life. But perhaps you're living for yourself and you're not recognizing the supremacy of Christ in your life. You say, oh yeah, He's my Savior, but the whole Lord part you're struggling with. For some of you, Jesus is prominent in your life, but He's not preeminent. He has a place in your world, but He does not occupy first place. Maybe you mistakenly thought you could just add Him to your life without bowing before His all-encompassing authority. It's time to surrender completely to Him. And I must say, church, we've got to get this right in our culture today. There's no more allowed in our culture today to say, oh, just come to Jesus and everything will be happy and be okay. No, we need to come to Jesus and bow our knee to Him as our Lord of our life, that He's supreme. Philippians 2 provides a fitting close to our time this morning. 
says that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. At some point, every one of us will confess. I would suggest to do that here while we're still on earth. Don't wait until it's before judgment time. And so church, I want to ask you right now, if you can and you're able, would you bow on your knees with me? I know some of you physically cannot. I understand it's a concrete floor. I want to lead you in a time of potentially for some of you, this could be the time you draw a line in the sand and say, I'm coming to Christ. For some of you in this room, it could be the time you say, you know what, I came to Christ, but I've not allowed Him to be preeminent. I've not allowed Him to be Lord. On your knees, bowing before God, and we bow out of humble submission. Let's just pray right now. Father God, gather on our knees before You. Gather on our knees, Lord, as a symbol that You are Lord. That you are preeminent. That you are everything. Father, at the foot of the cross is where we meet Jesus. At the foot of the cross is where we come to Christ and we surrender our life to your Lordship. I just want to speak to you in this room right now as you're on your knees before God. To really ask the question, have I ever surrendered? Have I ever accepted by faith Jesus is my Savior? Confessed of my sin? Told others that I believe in Jesus and then submitted to Him in Christian baptism? If you have not done that, over by our baptistries across, and as we continue to worship, whether it be right now, maybe you want to move, you want to come to the foot of the cross and say, today's my day to surrender. Or as we continue in worship, you come over here to the cross. I'll meet you right here at the foot of the cross and we'll help you walk through that process of just surrendering your life to Christ and receiving Him as your Savior. For some in this room, you've done that before, but you know that Jesus has not been first place. You know you've allowed business entities, you've allowed uh, rec- uh, recreation activities, you've, you've allowed just life to get in the way, and Jesus is somewhere on the list. But He's not first. And maybe today's just a time of repentance right where you are, or even as we continue to worship, you say, I'm going to come over to the cross. I'm going to get on my knees before God. I'm going to repent and, and seek a, a new direction with Jesus being first. So, Father, we're on our knees out of a humbleness, out of a submission to You, Lord. And, Father, in those two categories, would You work this morning? Maybe there is a person who needs a Submit their life to you. Give them the, the strength and the, the will to, to move. And Father, maybe some people just need to deal with some repentance in this place today. As we continue in worship, receive our communion, it's a time of reminder of who you are in Christ and that Jesus died on the cross for you to be reconciled to God. Father, we love you. Father, we honor you and we praise you this morning. And all God's people said, Amen.